Hi, welcome to Grace Intersect. The goal of this podcast is to help us have an increasingly clear understanding of grace. My name is Jerry Moldenhauer. Thanks for joining us today. In the last episode of Grace Intersect, my wife Paula said, Well, I think the biggest turning point probably in my spiritual journey, it was maybe 15, 20 years ago, and it was changing from exactly what you're talking about, this image of God as someone that I never could live up to his standards. I was always disappointing him. I felt like I was constantly failing. I was a perfectionist. I I needed to, to, to perform better for him. And once that image of God was contradicted by the Holy Spirit and by scripture, my whole spiritual journey turned around. The rest of the episode focused primarily on how we see God and how we respond to that perception. What about our understanding of how God sees us? Who, what does he see of us? How do we respond to that? Is it possible that our perception of God has been distorted? I'd like you to think about something. It might be hard, real hard actually. Hopefully it will resolve into something good. Think about a time when you experienced some significant manipulation. Maybe it came from another person, or from a group that you belong to, or even on a larger scale, like from the culture you live in. As you think about that, what kind of feelings are you experiencing right now? What form did the manipulation take? Is it still ongoing? Is it completely in the past? How soon were you confidently aware of it? What did you learn from it? Have you been manipulated by a religion, system, or people within the system? In the early to mid-70s, when I was in my mid-20s, I had occasion to attend a screening of a movie called Marjo at California State University in Sacramento. It was a documentary of a child evangelist who, in his 20s, decided to expose his experience of manipulation in the Pentecostal movement. It was introduced by Marjo himself, and following the movie was a question-and-answer time with him. I had a brief exchange with him during that time that, well, that may come up in a future episode of Grace Intersect. What impacted me while watching the movie were feelings of anger, shame, embarrassment, and frustration. My church roots allowed me to picture myself at some of his events. The tent revivals and Sawdust Trail were familiar to me. In serious contrast, however, was the purpose of the meetings that I attended as a child. My church background was made up of sincere, well-intentioned people. The meetings I attended were designed to introduce people to God. They were often done at a financial loss. Offerings were collected, but not focused on. The movie hit home just close enough for me to be angry at what Marjo exposed. I was ashamed and embarrassed for Christianity. The intentional, deceitful manipulation was so raw. How could anyone do that to another person, let alone a large group? And not just once, but day after day after day. And in the name of Jesus? It was hard to fathom. It was disgusting. It was cold-blooded. Religious practitioners are rightly criticized when they are being manipulative or guilt-inducing or shaming, and sometimes they're just downright cruel. Typically, religions are a human construct with all the inherent flaws of humans. Of course, the same criticisms, for the same reason, are applicable to politics, marketing and branding, corporations, nonprofits, schools, and so on. Let's bring it down to the micro level. The same criticisms are applicable for the same reason in almost all personal relationships. No matter how idealistic we are, we can only cautiously hope 
for a better future because our past is littered with the debris of our human condition. Let's face it, when we experience manipulation, it causes all sorts of responses. If we don't recognize it right away, things may be generally okay for a while. At some point, however, the manipulation will become apparent. When it does, responses of anger, frustration with ourself, sadness, bitterness, possibly even revenge, can all hit. Why does manipulation hurt so much? Most often it comes from those closest to us, or those for whom we have high regard, or from an organization we have invested in heavily, heart, soul, and finances. When they betray our relationship this way, it directly and negatively impacts our sense of personal values and integrity. We feel a part of our identity has been violated. What we believe is challenged. We may even question ourselves. The scars can last a lifetime. What is interesting about Christianity is the way Jesus set a perfect example of transparency. He lived a simple, straightforward life of reality. Those who wanted to play gotcha games with him were usually dispatched outright. He didn't accept their manipulative path. Sometimes he was cryptic with them, not giving them any satisfaction from their encounter with him. Sometimes he called them out very directly, describing them in quite uncomplimentary terms. They were dishonest, plain and simple. He didn't mess around playing their games. Furthermore, he didn't seem to make any attempt to establish a continuing relationship. Others, from a sincere or searching hearts, could question him. They were treated to a gentle conversation that probed and processed them on a spiritual level. In fact, he was willing to establish a relationship with them to the extent they wanted it. Crowds of people followed him, many for the miracles he provided, but thousands would listen to him. He projected a personal integrity that was refreshingly attractive. There was no need to be concerned that he would manipulate them in any way. He wasn't looking to be a celebrity, politician, or military leader. He wasn't starting a movement. They could tell he genuinely cared about them, each of them. Jesus explained life. He was connecting people on an individual basis to an understanding of God. He did this without flamboyance, manipulation, or coercion. He simply was helping people know how God sees them and inviting them to participate with God in a loving relationship. His message? Since God created us as specific individuals, uniquely, distinctively, personally different from any other person, He wants a personal love relationship that is customized for each of us. With God, there is no pretense, hidden agenda, false advertising. There is no form of deception. A loving relationship requires face-to-face -face honesty. And that is what Jesus was doing. In each personal encounter, he connected face-to-face -face with integrity and invited people to a personal relationship with God. This is where we humans have complicated life. The clean, straightforward relationship that Jesus offers gets muddied up by our misunderstanding and, worse, manipulation of how God sees us. Instead of allowing the message of Jesus to speak for itself, we add our twist to it, sometimes innocently, sometimes wickedly. For example, as we've mentioned, it's pretty clear that Jesus connects with each of us individually. He isn't seeking group recognition or organizational acceptance. We are pursued by him for a personal relationship. In this relationship, we don't lose our uniqueness. Our personality, skills, abilities are all intact. It is what makes us beautifully different from each other. Beyond that, when aligned with Jesus, he delights in who we each are. There is no one else like us. He loves us as that one and only person. He wants to express his spirit through our exclusive self, as only we can. We finally get to be the complete person God created us to be. However, it is common in Christian circles to hear phrases improperly taken from the Bible that confuse this understanding. 
Taken out of appropriate context, these phrases can be and have been used to heap guilt and shame on those in God's family. If you come from a Christian background, you may have experienced some of that from well-meaning but mistaken teachings. Even worse, from the mouths and writings of charlatans. These are used to manipulate and control. Have you heard that you need to deny yourself? In what context? While this is a common New Age spiritual admonition, it is also frequently used by Christians. For Christians, the idea is to be humble, to give up who you are and what you like so that Jesus can be seen more purely. Your priorities and choices should be only God-focused and not of your own interests. Sometimes this phrase is paired with a quote from John the Baptist that says, He must increase, I must decrease. These are so wildly out of context, but are useful for those who seek to control others. Also connected with the deny yourself phrase is, Take up your cross daily. This is used to suggest that every day we must be mindful of what we should give up, of what we like and want, and even love. Somehow, we must sacrifice all that for Jesus on a daily basis. In case you don't know how to do that, there are plenty of people, some well-meaning and others malicious, who are more than happy to help you figure it out. This can leave you with a deep sense of inferiority and hopelessness brought on by these fear-based teachings. This comes from a reading of Matthew 16, verse 24, where Jesus said to those he was mentoring, If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What is Jesus saying here? The key word is become. To follow Jesus is a decision. When the decision is made, God initiates a spiritual process. This is clearly an instruction to those who want to follow him, but have not yet done so. It doesn't relate to our new relationship with Jesus after we have begun following him. These scriptures are not instructions on how to live as a Christian. Jesus goes on to say, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it benefit a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his life? Or what can a person give in exchange for his life? So, Jesus is teaching about the process one goes through to become a follower of his. One must be willing to give up a broken life ending in death. The old self has no good or long-term future. God will crucify and bury it. That old self is now lost and a new self is found in the spirit of Jesus. An exchange of the old, give it up, put it to death, for the new is made. Once that process has happened, the new self is spiritually aligned with Jesus and eternal life is in place. There is no need to re-kill the old self and there certainly is no need to kill the new self. There is no need to deny it either. Followers of Jesus are spiritually forever new. Look at it this way. Jesus was killed, buried, and resurrected one time. In deciding to join him, our old self too is spiritually killed and buried with him one time. With our spiritual resurrection, we are complete in him forever. A book written to Romans just after the time of Jesus puts it this way, And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead, and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. Quite clearly, Jesus was not going to die again, nor deny himself again. Nor do we, who have gone through the spiritual death, burial, and resurrection. A first century letter written to a group in the area of modern Turkey said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Another personal acquaintance of Jesus wrote, This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Another notation from a first century letter to those in a city in Greece says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. I don't know about you, but this seems pretty plain to me. The Spirit of Jesus lives in us along with the new heart He has given us. We are now living life with Jesus. You might be thinking, how can I mess up so often if the Spirit of Jesus is alive in me? That is a good question. We know that our thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors are far from perfect. Jesus personally mentored a man named Paul. Paul wrote a letter to believers in Rome. In it, he says this, For the death he, speaking of Jesus, died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Jesus died to the power of wrong and evil. It was our imperfections that have been died to, because we have accepted his death as our own. That means we can consider ourselves dead to imperfections. They no longer rule us. We now consider ourselves alive in relationship with Jesus. My experience in a wide variety of churches suggests that much of Christianity has a distorted view of how God sees those in his family. The God who is a demanding taskmaster and performance critic of his children just doesn't exist. How he sees us has been distorted. He is not measuring our moment-by-moment conduct. He is not testing the quality of our allegiance, commitment, or dedication by seeing how much we are willing to sacrifice. It's never about what we can do for God. We can never do enough or do it perfectly, but it is about what he has done for us as only he can. His love and grace inspires and motivates us to walk with him and live like him. We now have his pure DNA. Our life is lived from our new thoroughly authentic self in the core of our very being, and it is revealed in an observable way. We are now agreeing with God's spirit as he empowers our transformation. The new heart and spirit we now have with Jesus puts us on a path of fulfilling and eternal life. The power of evil may still evidence itself in our thoughts and actions, but when it does, we will usually feel pretty bad about it. Those times of spiritual stumbling won't satisfy for long, if at all, because now our deepest core desire is to live in a love relationship with Jesus. At this point, we are stuck with Jesus, but what better place to be? Through his love and grace, we are being transformed. We have a new wardrobe of thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors. These fit us better than anything else. Putting on clothes from the old wardrobe? Well, they no longer fit like before. We don't look good in them. May as well discard them. Consider them worthless. We are better styling with Jesus. Let's put on what he's wearing. Thank you for listening today. My name is Jerry Moldenhauer, and this is the Grace Intersect Podcast. And as we process grace together, please know that your thoughts and questions are always welcome. Comments may be made at the graceintersect.com website or by emailing comments at graceintersect.com. Have a great day.